Good morning. Let's take God's Word and turn to the book of Galatians. And I'm going to read in chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. Uh, We have already considered uh, verses 13 through 15. And we have also already considered verses 16 through 18. Our text is really really begins in the 19th verse, but I want to begin reading from an earlier juncture to set the flow, to set the context, to ensure that we are following Paul's, Paul's thought flow, his argument. So reading in Galatians 5, verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Now, someone asked me some weeks ago uh, for a good, for a suggestion of a good biography to read. And for the life of me, I can't remember who you were. I've narrowed it to about 23 people, possibilities, (laughs) but I I just cannot remember. So if it's you, here's here's my answer. Uh, A great biography to read is the work of Andrew Bonner, B-O-N-A-R, and it is called The Biography of Robert Murray McShane. For you parents with uh, young men in the household especially, uh, I I encourage you. It is worth purchasing for them, new, second-hand copy, third-hand copy, whatever, and uh, get them to read it and reflect on it. I read it for the first time perhaps when I was 17, 18 years of age, and it has had a lasting impact. The biography of Robert Murray McShane. Let me tell you how it ends. He's dead at 29 years of age. He's dead at 29 years of age. And yet in his brief life, he accomplished far more than most of us accomplish in far longer lifetimes. Used mightily of the Lord in the city of Dundee, Scotland, mid-1800s, during a season of exceptional revival. And there is much in that biography to glean from, to learn, to appropriate, 
And so that is my answer to whomever asked that question, looking for a recommendation, a suggestion of a good, I'm looking at a few who I think it might have been, biography to read. Again, the biography of Robert Murray McShane. He, uh, what we have, we have a lot of his sermons. I think most of the sermons he ever preached, they are extant. We have them and we can get our hands on them and read them. In one of his sermons, he declared the following to his church, St. Peter's in Dundee, Scotland. Most of God's people are content, happy, satisfied to be saved from the hell without. By without, he means outside of themselves. Most people, most of God's people are content to be saved from the hell that is without, meaning they are happy to have their sins forgiven. They are happy to have the hope of eternal life. They are happy to have the prospect of seeing loved ones who have gone on before them to glory. They are content with this. They are happy with this. They are satisfied with this, but that's all they want. Most of God's people are content to be saved from the hell that is without. They are not so anxious, however, to be saved from the hell that is within. They are not so anxious, however, to be saved from the hell within. By the hell within, he is referring to the flesh and that great struggle between the flesh and the spirit. He adds, I fear, I fear there is little feeling of their need for the indwelling spirit, their need for the indwelling spirit. It brings us to our text. It brings us to Paul's central focus, main argument in these verses, where he lays before us this great hell, if you like, this great inner turmoil, this great inner struggle, and he prescribes for us a very simple remedy, 16th verse, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You'll recall from last Lord's Day that there is, I affirm, there is a sin-desiring principle called the flesh. So there is this principle within us, this inclination towards self-love, and it colors everything we do. Not only what we do, but what we say, what we think, what we feel. There is, secondly, a God-desiring principle called the Spirit. And so I am describing Christians. I am not describing the unbeliever. In the case of the unbeliever, there is only a sin-desiring principle called the flesh. If you're an unbeliever, straight to the point. Here it is. You must understand your condition before a holy God. And Scripture describes that condition as follows. Flesh, you are a lover of self. It's, I say it, I, I, I trust I say it compassionately. You're not as sweet as you think you are. You're really not in God's sight. You are a lover of self, and that principle of self-love corrupts absolutely everything you do, even the so-called good things you do, and it renders them repugnant in the sight of God. That is your condition, the flesh. And as believers, we still struggle with the flesh. That principle of self-love will not be eradicated this side of glory, but we've experienced a new birth. 
The Holy Spirit now dwells within, has entered within. And there is now this principle rooted in the Spirit, whereby we have this desire to please God. And so what is the result? We have this principle over here, sin desiring, self-pleasing. And we have this principle or inclination over here. I want to do what God wants me to do. And there they are both active within us and they oppose each other. And Christian, that explains you. And it explains me. It tells us everything about us. That inner turmoil and struggle. Why is it I do what I don't want to do? Why is it I don't do what I do want to do? Why is it daily? I can't escape it. I can't get away from it. There is this inner battle raging. It is because these two hate each other. They cannot coexist. That is our struggle this side of glory. It is a battle. This is the Christian battle, Christian warfare, this struggle between the spirit and the flesh. They are two semi-intact motivational systems within us and both wants to be want to be uppermost we must says paul what walk by the spirit that god desiring principle within us and when we do walk by the spirit what does he say in the 16th verse we won't gratify the desires of the flesh why because the desires of the Spirit will push out the desires of the flesh. We all know what live oaks are, right? Do you see any live oaks this time of year? They still have their leaves, don't they? They will lose their leaves when? Early spring. Why? They don't drop until what, what happens? What? The new leaves push them out. That's what Paul is describing here. The desires of the flesh will only go. The desires of the flesh will only be pushed out as the desires of the Spirit reign supreme as we walk by the Spirit. We will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, what exactly does this look like? This walking, this walking by the Spirit, these desires of the Spirit, what will they look like? Okay, this, this subjugation of the desires of the flesh and the accompanying works What's that going to look like? Well, Paul doesn't leave us hanging. He describes what this looks like beginning in the 19th verse all the way through to verse 23. He begins with the negative, the works of the flesh, verses 19, 20, and 21. There you have it. It's a list. It's pretty horrific. There it is. Note four things. Brief commentary quickly. Note four things. Number one, this list is not exhaustive. Skip to verse 21. Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. It is not an exhaustive, complete list. It is a representative list. And so you can go to Romans chapter 1, for example. You can go to Ephesians chapter 4. You can go to Colossians. You can go to a number of portions in Paul's letters especially, and you will see other lists, other works of the flesh. So this list is representative, not exhaustive. Second thing I want you to notice is this. It consists of four categories. 
The works of the flesh. This is now the expression of the desires of the flesh. We have this principle, this, this sin-desiring, sin-pleasing principle within us. We are governed by this desire, this self-love. Because of our self-love, we define happiness according to what we want, our corrupt nature. And this leads to inordinate desires to achieve our end, what we perceive to be our happiness. And this will work itself out in works. And four categories in particular, these desires will have an expression how? Sexually. Right there, the first three words in verse 19, sexual immorality. It's sexual impurity. It's sexual sensuality. And so this touches our conduct. It touches our practices. It touches our desires. The second category, religiously. Two words, right at the start of verse 20, idolatry and sorcery. We'll start worshiping anything but God. The third category, these desires affect us relationally. This is a lengthy list. Beginning third word in, verse 20, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness. And now the fourth category, these desires affect us behaviorally, drunkenness, and the last two words, orgies. Orgies is not a sexual connotation. These are drinking parties. It's an orgy of drunkenness. It is sadly what will transpire in some households this afternoon. The watching of the football game will simply be an excuse to crack open, I don't know how many cans of beer, and to put one on, right? It is what will happen in the stands at many of these football games. It'll be an excuse to drink, and there will just be this drunken stupefaction encompassing masses of people, a drunken orgy. And so the, this is the list. These are the four categories of how these inordinate desires will find expression, sexually, religiously, relationally, and behaviorally. Third thing I want you to notice is this. It is the third category that is most prevalent, isn't it? Most prevalent. That's interesting. We might ask ourselves, why? And I'm hazarding a guess here. Terrible thing for a preacher to say, but I'm just hazarding a guess. I, I, I am supposing that this was close to home in the context of the churches of Galatia. That perhaps these were real problems in these churches. That uh, this was the current state of affairs in these churches. They were marked by enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. And Paul wants to draw their attention to the fact, and he wants them to understand that these works of the flesh are the manifestation of the desires of the flesh, this principle of self-love. And if they want to remedy these things, if they want to address these things, if they want to subdue these things, if they want to put them away, there's only one means by which they can do that. They must start walking by the Spirit. Fourth thing I want you to notice is this. Those who do such things. It's right there in verse 21. Those who do such things. Those who do such things. I'll repeat it one more time, I guess, for the sake of emphasis. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's it. There's no place in heaven. There is no chance of salvation for the individual who practices these things, for the individual who walks in these things, for the individual, when you look upon their life, these things are characteristic of them. That individual, despite what profession they might make, 
that individual will not inherit the kingdom of God. He begins with the negative. He proceeds to the positive. The fruit of the Spirit, verses 22 and 23, notice three things. First is this, the fruit is related to character, right? Look at those words, love, joy, peace. It is all about character, an individual's character. Love is the opposite of what? Selfishness, joy, the opposite of despair, peace, the opposite of anxiety, patience, the opposite of resentment, kindness, I think the direct opposite of envy, goodness, opposite of hypocrisy, faithfulness, opposite of unreliability, gentleness, opposite of roughness, self-control, the opposite of self-indulgence. This is character. Notice, secondly, there is actually only one fruit. These are not the fruits. This is not plural. There is but one fruit, nine clusters, if you like, on this fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Together, these constitute one piece of fruit. Third thing I want you to notice is this, against such things, right there at the end of verse 23, there is no law. Against such things, there is no law. What does he mean by that? It's a tricky statement, and I'm not sure I have quite got it. But in the overall context, and this is why I went all the way back and read from the start of verse 13, I think what Paul is saying is simply this. Look, the fruit of this Spirit, if you walk by the Spirit, this is what will be made evident in your life. And as the, this fruit is made evident in your life, well, the works of the flesh and the desires of the flesh will be pushed out. Understand this, the law can never do that for you. Not in a million years, right? Which sets the entire exhortation back in the context of the entire epistle, which is what? Don't go back and live under the law. It can't do anything for you. No, you must walk by the Spirit. And walking by the Spirit, this fruit will be produced. And as this fruit is produced, the works of the flesh and the desires of the flesh will be put away. Again, the commandment, 16th verse, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, here we go. Ten things I hope you didn't miss as we made our way through those verses, okay? Ten lessons, ten pastoral words of counsel, ten points of application, however you want to uh, label it, whatever you want to call them. But I pray the Spirit of God gives us wisdom in this and blesses us in terms of our application. Quickly, we will go through some, not so quickly through others. I'll maybe read each at least once, maybe twice, and I know that's 10. That's a lot to get down for those of you who are trying to write this down, but I promise you, these will show up in care group on Wednesday night. They will be there, and they will be front and center. And so if you have a difficulty writing and listening, just put your pen down, just listen for now, and these will show up on Wednesday night. Number one, first lesson I hope we get out of these verses is this. Those who are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, live in a new way. That's evident from the text, isn't it? That's not a stretch of the imagination. Those who are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, live in a new way. I'm a sinner. Biographical sketch. I'm a sinner. I came under conviction of my sin. I realized that uh, I was uh, under 
God's judgment. My situation was perilous, dangerous. And I heard the gospel, that there is salvation in the Lord Jesus, and not in my works, not in anything I have done. No merit on my own. And so I believed in the Lord Jesus, became one with the Lord Jesus, and therefore declared just and righteous in the sight of God. Justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen. But please get this. Those who are justified in that fashion, those who are saved, those who are one with Christ, live in a new way. State it in slightly different terms. Here's what I, I guess what I'm really driving at. For the Christian, change is normal. Some of us, you would think it was abnormal. An option. To not change is an abnormality as a Christian. To be a Christian is to change. Billy Graham, what he used to proclaim, you come just as I am. That was the hymn, wasn't it? He closed every crusade with, just as I am. And that's true. We come just as we are so that God can do what? Change us into what we are not. To be a Christian is to be changed. And so as we look out at this congregation, we look at this hall this morning, you know, we have babies, we have infants. Well, they've gone out now, most of them. And we have young children, older children, youth, adolescents, whatever, Young adults, middle-aged, and then just beyond that, whatever categories we are using these days. That's good. It's normal. And at each of those stages, we expect what? Certain behavior, certain understanding, certain conduct, certain measure of maturity. But if an 80-year-old is still acting like an 8-year-old, what do we know? Something's wrong here. This is an abnormality. Oh, I pray we do derive that lesson, that basic lesson truth from this text, that those who are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, live in a new way. If you or I, if we are the same people today we were five years ago, that is cause for worry. That is cause for worry. If we've not changed in our life, our character, our conduct, our growth in Christ-likeness over the length of our profession of faith in Christ, if we continue to be today the exact same people we were three, five, seven, ten years ago, that is not normal. That is abnormal. To be a Christian is to grow. It is to change. And Paul is making that so clear in these verses. And it may be you've been holding on to something in your life. It may be there has been a besetting sin. There may be there has been this prevailing attitude. There has been this seed of bitterness. But there has been something in your life you will not let go of. And there you are and you have been floundering for an indeterminate period of time right now. I, I, I say it to you and I say it to you pastorally as a Christian. That is not normal, my friend. That is not normal. That is abnormal. Sadly, as Christians, we cater to the lowest common denominator in our day, don't we? No, 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 my friend. To be a Christian is to change. If you have sin in your life, repent of it and stop it. If you're thinking foolishly, wise up and start living like a wise man, a live woman. If you're making bad decisions continually, if you're being flippant in your attitude toward the Lord Jesus, if you're being careless in your walk, don't think, well, this is just normal. It's my struggle with the flesh. There's nothing normal about it. To be a Christian is to grow. Here's the second truth. 
We can't see this growth actually happen, but we can measure it over time. We can't see it actually happen as it is taking place, but we can see it over time. And so you buy that plant, that H-E-B, I don't know wherever they sell them. Do they sell them there? Maybe they do. You get that plant, you bring it home, you set it there in the living room, close to the window, it'll catch the afternoon sun. You water it faithfully, I don't know, every other day, whatever it needs, a little tender care. You talk to it once in a while, that's okay. But if you sit there and stare at it, you're never going to see it grow. How do you know it's alive and well? You take care of it. Two weeks later, you come back and what do you see? It's a little different. That leaf wasn't there before. That leaf wasn't that big before. You come back two months later. That looks like a bud. That was never there before. Three buds. You come back three weeks later and the thing's got flowers. We see change over time. So too it is in our Christian journey, Christian walk. If you're taking stock of your life as to how the past 24 hours went, boy, that might not be a pretty picture. You shouldn't be drawing any conclusions from that. We draw conclusions over our Christian sojourn over years. Has this fruit, is this fruit apparent? It might not be fully developed, but it will be present over time. Here's the third lesson I hope we get from these verses. True spirituality is manifesting the fruit of the Spirit. You want to be a spiritual man, a really spiritual man. You want to be a spiritual woman. You live like this. True spirituality is walking by the Spirit. True spirituality is walking by the Spirit to such a degree that the fruit of the Spirit is manifest in us. True spirituality has nothing to do with how gifted we are. Absolutely nothing. True spirituality has nothing to do with how learned we are. How many books I've read? How many theological puzzles can I unravel? That has nothing to do with spirituality. Spirituality has nothing to do with how much money I've given, how much we've sacrificed, how busy we are. No, true spirituality is rooted in the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, which is always evident in this fruit. It's why we're memorizing what as a church this month? You may have been wondering that. We're in Galatians. Why are we memorizing 1 Corinthians 13, 1, 2? Why? Because Paul there makes the point I'm making here, doesn't it? Doesn't he? doesn't matter. I, I, could, I could have the gift of prophecy and prophetic great things. I could pray that this mountain goes from here, goes to there. I can give my body to the flame. I can do this. I can do that. But without love, it's the fruit of the Spirit. Without love, I am. I am nothing. I'm hot air. I'm just a bag of hot air. I'm nothing. Oh, I pray we've learned that from this text, that true spirituality is manifesting the fruit of the Spirit. Here's the fourth lesson. Our natural strengths, a little trickier but important, our natural strengths are the consequences of our natural temperaments. We're all wired a certain way, personalities, temperaments, and, uh, and those temperaments influence us, and those temperaments are accentuated by, accentuated by certain circumstances, and we can fall into the trap of thinking at times that our natural traits are the fruit of the Spirit, when in actual fact, they're simply the marks of our temperament. It's 
Let me illustrate this for you. It's important we understand it. If I'm gentle, if I'm gentle, but not, for example, faithful when it comes to the truth of God's word or faithful in my friendships, I know that my gentleness is not actually a fruit of the Spirit. It's simply the manifestation of my natural temperament. Did you get that? It's important we understand it, friends. If I'm a happy person, happy-go-lucky, always joyous, celebrating, but I'm not, very, I'm not patient at all when it comes to difficult people or events, then I know that my joy is not the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It is simply my natural temperament. All right? Many of us confuse our natural temperament for the fruit of the Spirit. and say, well, at least I'm like this, but I'm not like that. Friend, you're neither. Because it's only one fruit. Where there is one, there will be the other. Where there is the other, there will be the other. And so we may make our way through that list. You may have done it as I was reading it. I don't want to ask anybody to put their hand up. But as we went through that list, you may say, seven out of nine. C, a solid C, just like back in high school. Good times. Seven out of nine. It's a passing grade. No, my friend, it's zero out of one or it's one out of one. There's only one fruit. You can't have some of these and not the others. You can't have love and not be gentle. You can't have self-control and not be kind. You can't have patience and not goodness. It is one piece of fruit. Do not confuse these things with your natural disposition or what life circumstances have caused you to become. That has nothing to do with the fruit of the Spirit. And you know the difference how? When all parts of this cluster, nine pieces, there may not be perfection, but they are present. And this is the manifestation of the working of the Spirit of God. Fifth lesson is this. We ought to examine ourselves in the light of the fruit of the Spirit. It's the difference between sincerity and hypocrisy. It is the difference between vitality and formality. And so I have a relative, a relative I have not seen for some years now, many years, more than a decade. And uh, this incident came by way of my, my mother, and she was telling me that this, uh, this relative was living with her boyfriend and had been for some time, but still going to church. I'm not against that. It's a good thing. Still claimed to be a Christian. I don't think the preacher was targeting her, but in the course of his exposition of scriptures, uh, made the point that uh, cohabitating prior to marriage, uh, it's adultery. It is sexual sin. It is what is mentioned here under the works of the flesh. Well, she decided to leave that church and find a church where they didn't believe that. If she were to walk in here right now and we were to ask her, are you a Christian? She said, of course, I'm a Christian. Show you how culturally hip I am. I will quote from the princess bride. I do not think that word means what you think it means. What is it to be a Christian? It is to put to death the works of the flesh. And it is to manifest and show forth the fruit of the Spirit. And by examining these two lists, and in particular the fruit of the Spirit, oh, we can quickly discern and differentiate between sincerity and hypocrisy, vitality and formality. Here's the sixth lesson. Paul's warning ought to terrify the unbeliever. Right there, verse 21. Those who do such things will not inherit 
the kingdom of God. There is no chance. Uh, we know what, my friends? We are not justified by our works, but we are damned by them. We're not justified by our works, but we are damned, condemned for them. And that is Paul's point here. Uh, the person who lives here, the person who does these things, practices these things, sexual immorality, that might be you right now sitting there. I'm sorry if it makes you feel uncomfortable, but th this, is, this is for your spiritual good and help. Rivalries, anger, fits of angers. That might be you. That might be your entire life. Just anger, 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 anger. Dissensions, rivalries, drunkenness. It doesn't say alcoholism, a disease. It's drunkenness. Drunkenness. Uh, if that is you, that is your habitual practice, you. And please, I, 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 I say it tenderly. I pray. I'm just sticking to the text. It's the, it's the safest place. It's the best I can do. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You're on the outside, and you must be born again. Oh, you must be born again. Oh, I know, I, I have to speak to all, don't I? I know there is the sensitive soul out there now. I know there is the sensitive soul. He's thinking to himself, she's thinking to himself. For all I know, it might be plural souls. There may be a number of you. And you're thinking to yourself, well, I've, I've kind of struggled with that off and on. As a matter of fact, I, uh, that was not good last week. All right, so does that mean, is, 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 he, is he speaking to me? Is Stephen speaking, is he, is he speaking to me? Is he telling me right now, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God? No, for the sensitive soul, the best I can do, and I have shared it here before, but it has been a long time. Oh, my friend, please remember the difference between a sheep and a pig. Lots of differences. What am I talking about? What is the difference between a sheep and a pig when it comes to the mud hole? Occasionally, the sheep might fall in accidentally, right? It can happen. But one sin, what does it want? It wants out. Pig, it goes looking for the mud hole. And once in the mud hole, I'm home. And he revels in it. There's the difference, my friend. He, Paul is not speaking to those who have struggled. He's not speaking to those who have fallen. He is not sp speaking to those, well, I did that once, or this was a struggle last week. That is not his point. Those who do such things, those who practice such things, that as you look at your life, yeah, that's me. This is me. Fits of anger, if, if those who know me, that's me. That's my life. Sexual immorality, that's where I'm living right now, and I have been for some time, and I have no plans to change. Rivalries, dissensions, that's my entire life. Envy, oh, I'm in the grip of envy. I can't do anything without being motivated by envy and jealousy. If that is the world you live in, Paul is speaking to you, I am speaking to you, please hear the warning again and do not miss it. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You must be born again. It's a Nicodemus experience. There he was. He went by night to the Lord Jesus. What must I do to be saved? What must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? Oh, you must be born again. The Spirit of God must enter in, and he must give you new thoughts like you've never had before, and new feelings like you've never had before, and he must implant within this principle that was never there before, whereby, you know what? I want to know God's will. I really do. 
And not only do I want to know it, I want to do it. And I still have the flesh. It's still there. It has not gone away. And again, it won't this side of heaven. And there's still that desire there to do what I want whenever I want, however I want. And now there is this struggle and this battle. Oh, but I'm determining daily to walk by the Spirit so that I might not gratify the desires of the flesh. Oh, take this warning to heart. Here's a seventh lesson quickly. The fruit of the Holy Spirit pushes out the works of the flesh, right? And so you go through that list, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. It will be pushed out by love, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. You look at that list, that relational list, uh, 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 enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. It will be pushed out by the fruit of the Spirit. You look at drunkenness and orgies, it will be pushed out by the Holy Spirit. When we are walking by the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit is growing and cultivating and welling up in us, it leaves no place for the works of the flesh. Here's the eighth lesson. We ought to have a ruthless attitude when it comes to this. A very ruthless attitude. We need to stop playing with the works of the flesh. We need to stop calling it entertainment. We need to stop minimizing it. We need to stop excusing it. And we most certainly need to stop justifying it. We need to be decisive in our repentance. Decisive. Uh, Resolved. Use a great word. Edwardian word, resolved that this week I'm going to do this and not do that. Resolve that today I'm going to live like this and not like that. Resolve that from this day forward, I'm going to take verse 16 to heart and it's going to be a central prayer request. And this is what I'm going to seek from the hand of the Lord, that he be gracious to me, that he quicken me according to his word, that he cause me to walk by the spirit. Oh, be ruthless in your attitude towards sin. Here's the ninth lesson. The incentive to walk like this by the Holy Spirit is Christ. Look at verse 23, verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Oh, what does that mean? Tell me more. Tell me more. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. You want to know more? Next Sunday. That's next Sunday, verse 24 and 25. What exactly does that mean? Where does this great motivational desire come from? How does Paul root our present experience in a past experience? How does he now bring the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit together? How does he bring the cross into this picture, into view, whereby in the cross and in the shadow of the cross, I find the motivation I need to walk by the Spirit so that I do not gratify the desires of the flesh. Next Lord's Day. Number 10, finally, the 10th lesson we see in these verses. I'm thinking especially of the fruit of the Spirit, obviously, 21, 22, and 23. We see the full, complete, and perfect manifestation of this fruit in the Lord Jesus Christ. Had a wonderful time here Wednesday night with the young people. And uh, we reviewed last Sunday's sermon, and I previewed this Sunday's sermon. And I went through this text, the fruit of the Spirit, and I made this exact point that uh, we see the full, complete, perfect manifestation of this fruit in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I asked them, how? How? And it was wonderful. Their answers were wonderful. And what was even more wonderful 
was when the penny finally dropped for a number of them, and then by consequence for all, you cannot point to just one incident. You cannot merely point to this. You cannot merely point to that. You cannot divorce this from that or that from this. But the Lord Jesus Christ from beginning to end is the full, perfect, complete manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit. And we see it in His dealings with the sick, the young, the difficult, the lost. We see it when the leper kneels before Him. Don't we? We see it when men lower the paralytic at his feet. We see this fruit when Jairus pleads with him to heal his daughter. We see it when the woman with the hemorrhage reaches out her hand to touch his garment. We see it when the disciples are slow, so slow to understand. We see it when the Pharisees oppose him at every turn. We see it when he prostrates himself to wash his disciples' feet. We see it when the soldiers arrest and mistreat him. And we see it when he stretches out his arms upon Calvary's cross and bears the sin of the world. The full, perfect, complete manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's something very enticing to him, isn't there? Something very alluring. Something very inviting. When you see him through that lens, when you consider his character, and as you see this fruit, he who was full of the Spirit, and you see this fruit so fully displayed in him. And when you see this, there is encouragement to the obstinate. That might be you, the hard-hearted. There is encouragement. There is encouragement to come to him and realize that if you do come with a penitent heart, he will forgive you. Uh, there is encouragement to the wayward. Maybe some of our number. You've professed faith in Christ for some time and walked well for some time, but of late, not so well. Oh, see the fruit of the Holy Spirit in the Lord Jesus and see in him encouragement to come to him for reconciliation. Well, it's encouraging to the troubled, isn't it? The agitated, the worried, to come to him and find peace. It's encouragement to the downcast, those in the grips of sorrow and despair, to come to him and find comfort. Oh, and it's a great encouragement to the weary, to come to him and find rest. Something very inviting when it comes to the Lord Jesus. And I put it to you, there are a number of things. And preeminent among them all stands the fruit of the Holy Spirit. A full, complete, perfect manifestation. His character. Let me end where I began with Robert Murray McShane. He declared in another sermon the following, and I pray you'll take great encouragement from this. Christ is a powerful and precious Savior. And happy are those who put their trust in him. He is lovely to look upon. Having all divine and human excellencies meeting in himself. Oh, and he is meek and lowly in heart. Willing to save the vilest. He answers the need of your soul. 
You are all guilt. He is a fountain to wash you. You are all naked. He has a wedding garment to cover you. You are dead. He is life. You are all wounds and bruises. But his righteousness is broader than your sin. He is again a powerful and precious Savior. And happy are those who put their trust in him. Our Father, we do pray that Christ might be precious in our eyes this day. Lift our gaze heavenward and help us to see his excellencies, his surpassing beauty, and his loveliness. We pray that in him we might find great comfort and peace and encouragement, realizing that he is a willing Savior, that he's a compassionate Savior, tender-hearted in his dealings toward bruised reeds, those who come to him under the conviction of sin, bearing the weight of their offenses in his sight. We pray that some sinner might find that forgiveness this day. We pray that some wayward individual might find rest for his soul this day. We pray that some hard-hearted, obstinate sinner might find brokenness and experience healing this day. And we ask it for the furtherance of your kingdom and the glory of his name. Amen.